0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. My guest today is one of the very few people actually doing real reporting on what's happening on our southern border. John Daniel Davidson is the political editor over at The Federalist. His work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, National Review, and in the Texas Monthly, and he he lives uh, in Texas most of the time. Um, and right now, today, he's in Alaska, but uh, all Western, all Western states, and um, He has been publishing regular dispatches from our southern border in which he's been highlighting the developing crisis there, the lawlessness, the the humanitarian situation that's developing there. Um, And I brought John on to talk about this exactly because although I'm sure that he does have views on the subject, um, he's largely avoided writing about this issue from the the perspective of, of the domestic cultural battle about immigration, not not because that conversation and battle isn't important domestically. But I feel like it's so often held in a vacuum that has a a sort of lack of understanding of what everyone involved on both sides of the border is actually going through and facing on the ground. Um, And also as a a fellow Westerner here, I think a lot of the conversation that happens, especially in the Acela corridor and on the East Coast, um, sort of lacks an understanding of what it's actually like to live um, in the border region of the United States. So we are going to have that in-depth discussion today about what the situation down there actually is, why it got that way, and and hopefully some things that we might be able to do about it if we can muster the political will. And John is definitely the best person to guide us through that conversation. So so welcome to High Noon, John.
1: Thanks for having me, Inez. I don't know if I'm the best person, but I'll do my best.
0: One of the best, certainly. <laughs> um, so let's just start with the, the current state of the border right now. It's, it's Friday, August 13th when we're recording this. Um, and you just have a brand new piece up at The Federalist talking about how this crisis is not slowing down at all. So what's actually happening right now in mid-August on the border and what do we expect in the next few months?
1: Yeah, it's good that we're recording this today because yesterday U.S. Customs and Border Protection released their uh, July numbers for the border. So all the numbers of apprehensions, arrests, um, and, and just their general kind of monthly statistics for the border, which they do every month. And people who watch the border and cover the border have been anxiously awaiting for the July numbers. And because generally speaking, this time of year, we would expect the numbers of arrests at the border to start going down. That's true. Uh, Almost you know every year that they've been keeping track of, of these kinds of border statistics, uh, you see the same seasonal pattern. Uh, illegal immigration increases in the spring. Uh, it peaks uh, often you know in April or May. and then as the summer gets going and the temperatures rise in South Texas, it begins to drop off and, and, and sometimes can drop off quite quickly. Once we get into July and August, you know, we're talking triple digits very dangerous conditions uh, in South Texas and in Arizona for people crossing on foot. That's not what's happening this time. We're, we're seeing a, a, a very unusual trend in that uh, illegal border crossing continues to increase as the summer drags on, and not by a little bit. The increase from June to July was drastic, 188,000 total uh, apprehensions at the border in June. More than two hundred and twelve thousand in July, and that's very unusual. We we would we would, like I said, we would expect a, dec- a decrease, but even if we we saw an increase, we wouldn't expect that much. So something ha- something is happening on the border that is very unusual, um, and there there are forces at work here uh, that. I don't think most Americans uh, understand and quite frankly I don't think uh, a lot of the people at the higher levels in the Biden administration fully understand. Uh, certainly the, the policies they put forward don't show any kind of an understanding about what's happening or what their initial policies on coming into office have created. So we have a 20-year uh, high uh, in August monthly uh, for monthly apprehensions uh, that that followed a 20 year high in June for apprehensions. Uh, so, you know, we haven't seen these kinds of numbers on the border in 20 years, and we've never seen this makeup. So 20 years ago, in the, uh, we had, you know, one and a half million people uh, arrested at the border. They were almost all men from Mexico. Now the mix is much different. Where's families, there's children, there's people from all over the, the world. Uh, so it's a very different situation than it was 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, you're actually anticipating what I wanted to ask you next, which is, you know, we talk about this issue as though, essentially, it hasn't changed from 10 or 15 years ago, we still think about a lot of people still think about this issue as uh, essentially, economic migrants who are not necessarily even looking to stay in the United States, but are mostly single men who are crossing the border to find work and maybe send money back to their families. I mean, you mentioned that the profile of your typical migrant crossing the border in 2021 is is quite different than in 2001. Um you know in what way you, you already have said they come from different parts of the globe. I mean where do they come from um how are they crossing the border is that it's different from in the past? I mean how has all all of how has all of this developed over the past 20 years that makes it different?
1: Yeah. Uh, I I'll, I'll say uh, before I go into that I'll say that Uh, your comment at the beginning is well, well taken and absolutely right. I've always thought that Americans don't really understand the border and, and really, you know, in in many cases are not all that interested in understanding it and neither are a lot of corporate media outlets that, that uh, cover the border. We use it as a, as a proxy for our culture wars and our political battles, but, but understanding the border, you know, on its own terms and, and as a, as a sort of, really interesting and complicated and uh historically rich region and dynamic is not something that the media or the american people uh really have a firm grasp on so i'm I'm glad we're having this discussion as to your question about how it's changed you're right um you know 20 years ago the vast majority of of the people who crossed the southwest border were mexican men who were looking for work and um you know, there, there's there's a, a lot of history here, including NAFTA, including the development of uh, a lot of industry in northern Mexico as a result of NAFTA, uh, uh, but but also uh, involving the changing economy of of South Texas as a result of of increased trade and um, the flow of goods back and forth between factories in in the United States and in Mex- in northern Mexico, but all of you know that dynamic is not. Uh, the dynamic that is primarily driving the, the border crisis now. What we didn't have back then, and and honestly, the customs and border protection uh, back then, which was uh, it was the Immigration and Naturalization Service, actually back then, prior to. 2000, uh, prior to 9-11 and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which is boring and, and not, not really important, but they didn't even keep track of the categories of migrants that they keep track of now statistically. So family units, unaccompanied minors, accompanied minors, single adults, they didn't break it down like that, um, uh, but they do now. And part of the reason they do is because beginning in 2014, we had something happen at the border that had never really happened before. Large groups and a large volume of unaccompanied minors showing up, just showing up at the border, um, without their parents or without uh, you know any kind of legal guardian or adult. And This was under Obama, and initially the Obama administration had no idea what to do uh, and didn't understand why this was happening. And uh, detained these kids, tried to get them deported. Courts intervened, said you know because of this Flores settlement from the '90s, you can't detain these children for you know more than. Two week, uh, twenty days, um, and so they they started re- you know finding sponsors for them, you know, family members, relatives, legal guardians, vetting these people, transferring them to HHS. A whole bureaucracy kind of grew up out of what to do about this problem of unaccompanied minors in 2014. Well, that dynamic has evolved in, in the years in the years since 2014, um, and in 2019, the last time we had a big surge at the border, we saw. Unaccompanied minors, and we saw a huge volume of family units—an adult with one or more children—coming across and claiming asylum. Uh, and and the whole asylum thing, which a lot of people don't understand because it's complicated, uh, it is is a, uh, a almost like a a whole new category of of people at the border who who are arriving with children on purpose and filing an asylum claim, knowing that they will be released uh, in a very short period of time because they know if they have children with them, then they can't be held uh, for, for a long period. They can't be held more than a couple of weeks. And so they will be released, you know, usually with a court date to begin an asylum process that now can take up to three years. Usually it takes three years. So, there's a huge incentive that that is that no one like set out to create, but it's just a, a result of sort of bureaucratic uh, evolution and 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 torpor o- over the past you know eight years or so, um, and and backlogs in our immigration courts that have created a situation uh, where there's an incentive if you get across the border with with uh, with your children, or if you can get your child unaccompanied across the border you can be released in the United States, uh, pending the outcome of a case that will take years to adjudicate. Uh, and that is not a, a circumstance that we were dealing with back in the year 2000, when we had 1.6 million arrests at the border. That dynamic didn't exist in the same way at all. Um, and so it brings up all of these questions about, you know where where to house unaccompanied minors, what to do with families that are seeking asylum, how many people actually show up for these hearings, How many people actually get granted asylum from Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala? It's like 15% of people get granted asylum. Everyone else gets gets rejected. Um, You know. So, anyway, that's a long answer to your question. But the 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 dynamic is uh, is drastically different than it was 20 years ago, and yet we've made almost no changes. To federal immigration or asylum laws, in the meantime, to like actually, you know, meet this new challenge.
0: Yeah, it really seems like there are a lot of unintended consequences uh, of U.S. policy, right? That we set here, or even that isn't really policy, but for example, somebody running for president or uh, the current administration will make statements about you know what they are and are not willing to do um, for a domestic political debate, and then that has ramifications for people who essentially. They, they they show up because they have an expectation that um, more than likely they, they will be able to enter this system where they're released into the United States. And then they have at least, as you say, two, three years uh, here if they're showing up for the court dates. And if they're not, they can just sort of disappear and become one of the millions of, of people who are living illegally in the United States. It's um, a
1: reasonable expectation, I should say. It's, it's, they're not wrong you know like that if I w- lived in Honduras I would do the same thing you know that they're not wrong to have that expectation and and the reason I think the reason right now that we're seeing so many people come more people coming in as the summer goes on is that word is getting back to these sending communities that you, that yes if you get across the border you'll be detained but then but you'll be released you know that that I think that drives it it's 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 networks, and, and family networks and 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 communities uh, of people in the United States that are sending word back saying, it, you know, it worked, we got in, we're released, we got to where we were going. Um, they, that, that, that is much more powerful than any message any sort of idiotic message from Kamala Harris of, of don't come, you know, n- nobody's gonna listen to the vice president when they're gonna listen to their neighbors and their relatives.
0: Yeah, one, one thing we haven't talked about yet um, in terms of what's different between now and twenty years ago is the development of the role of the cartels and into essentially human trafficking um, as a money making enterprise. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the role of the cartels is here? What it was, you know, let's say a decade or two decades ago versus today? I mean, because it seems to me that it's amazing how little we talk about um, the cartels when we're talking about any kind of border situation, when it's the talking heads on, on sort of the Sunday talk show type situation um, to the point where I think it was Trump who said, who brought up coyotes um, like smugglers in the debate. And then there was some, I can't remember who it was, but somebody on one of these talking head shows was like, why is he talking about animals? (laughs) Right. That was was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) But what, what, what is the role of the cartels now as opposed to 2020, uh, Twenty years ago,
1: yeah. The the uh, I'll say the the reason that you don't uh, hear the talking heads on CNN or whatever talk about cartels is because it's counter it's counter narrative. Uh, the, the I I feel like the left uh, is is desperate to maintain uh, this narrative that the people coming across are you know victims. They're they're asylum seekers. We we should welcome them they um, you know, and and often the reality is they are victims, but they're 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 victims of of cartels and smuggling organizations that are taking advantage of them. Uh, and so, uh, yes, the 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 cartels in many cases are making uh, in some places along the border are making just as much off uh, the smuggling of migrants as they are the, the smuggling of narcotics. Um, it's because they have created uh, an industry from the demand, which will come as no surprise to anyone who follows these cartels. They, they are, as you say, they are money-making organizations. And we uh, need to, We don't think about them the way that we should, right? These aren't like, gang- I mean, in some places they're like gangs, but um, it's better to think of the cartels as like Halliburton, uh, but instead of, you know, uh, running logistics and supply chain management for global corporations, they traffic narcotics, weapons, cash and people. Uh, and not just that, they also steal fuel um, and, and are engaged in massive extortion and kidnapping, those sort of programs, they have diverse income streams, they're multinational corporations with nearly unlimited resources, highly sophisticated, uh, highly technologically advanced and organized. Uh, and, and have quite a bit of, um, you know, uh, firepower and, and sort of capability in terms of, of their operations on the ground. Not only that, over the past uh, year and a half during the pandemic, they have provided social services and aid to communities in Mexico out in the open, you know, with the cartel like logo on the side of their of their trucks kind of coming into city, the city square to distribute food and water during the pandemic. So we, we need to think of them. They, they are more like what Hezbollah is in in Lebanon than than they are like a, a a gang or a criminal gang. It's not to say they're not criminals, but their capabilities, I don't think uh, most Americans quite like understand Uh, The former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Mexico during the Trump administration, Christopher Landau, some months ago in in a in a forum said that um, 35 to 40 percent of the the geographic territory in in Mexico is controlled by cartels. Now, think about what that means when we talk about Mexico as a a sovereign state or as a partner uh, in dealing with illegal immigration. 35 to 40% of the territory is controlled, not by the Mexican state, but by the cartels. Uh, You know, what are we really talking about when we when we talk about partnering with Mexico to control illegal immigration? The cartels are, are, are making millions of dollars every day, hundreds of millions of dollars a week on illegal immigration. And they're doing it by by making sure that everybody who crosses the Rio Grande, if you cross the Rio Grande, you have to pay a tax. So you pay what you pay to the smuggler, but then the smuggler adds a tax for the cartel that controls that area. Uh, and and they've gotten very sophisticated about this. In 2019, during the last migrant surge, there were so many people crossing and such large groups that were crossing that the cartels missed out on a lot of income. And so this time around, they have gotten organized. There's there are uh, wristbands. Uh, there was a whole wristband system and a database where they're collecting information from every migrant, their phone number, where they're going in the United States, the phone number of their family members back home. They verify those phone numbers. Most of the migrants crossing are indebted to the cartels. So they, you know, these are, these are not people that have thousands of dollars in capital, you know, just that they can spend. So they go into debt. So you have people coming in that are in debt bondage to multinational criminal organizations. So... It's a very complicated problem, and it's, and it's a worsening problem because these cartels have figured out how to industrialize and create a black market out of illegal immigration. And this is a new problem that nobody really talks about.
0: Yeah, I mean, what implications does what you just said, um, I mean, to, to summarize what you just said, you're basically saying that our neighbor to the south is getting pretty close to being a failed state. Right yes. um, that it is a, a kind of narco state that where the the, the government actually does not have a, a monopoly on the use of force or power. very difficult to negotiate as your example about Hezbollah shows, right Part of the problems in the Middle East um, that have been ongoing is because it's very difficult to find a negotiating partner, right? Yeah. Um, if you have essentially terrorist groups um, that are controlling territory, and the government doesn't have a strong way of, of dictating to them what they should and should not do. It sounds like we're getting somewhere close to that in Mexico. I mean, how should we think about our relationship with Mexico? I mean, they, they achieved independence uh, a mere 45 years after us. Um, we have had a tumultuous but blended history alongside that border region. I think Again, people who are from the East Coast or, um, you know, haven't spent a lot of time on, on the southern border don't realize how much there there is so much sort of cultural overlap. And a lot of times you're talking about like this, the same quote unquote people on both sides yeah. of the border and yet this very clear demarcation of systems. Right, yeah. where on one side they're in, you know, obviously the United States has plenty of problems, and we discuss those all the time on this podcast. But um, there is a semblance of the rule of law. There's, um, you know, there there isn't as widespread corruption. And on the other side, there's, as you say, basically is being partially ruled by international cartels, drug cartels, right? So, how should we be changing how we think about Mexico as a negotiating partner, um, and and how? Should those changes in our thinking affect, you know, U.S. policy towards Mexico ultimately as two sovereign nations?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It's a big issue. I, I wish people talked about it more because it's a big, complicated issue. Um, we definitely need to change the way that we think about Mexico as a partner, and 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 maybe this will be a kind of a controversial or shocking p- position. Uh, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, because that's what I think. Um, we, we need to stop thinking of Mexico like as a as a reliable partner in managing the border. Uh, it's not. Um, uh, it's not maybe as bad as sort of, you know, the, uh, Lebanon, where you have like a parallel government in Hezbollah. And, and you know, we, we may not be uh, there yet. I think that we're trending that way. But uh, we need to stop thinking that we sort of have like an equal partnership with Mexico and that um, our interests, you know, that that our interests are aligned. Uh, and the reason uh, th- that I say that is because obviously the interests of the of the cartels that control much of northern Mexico, that their interests are not aligned with 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 the American national interest, no matter what Mexico City says. And increasingly, Mexico City is not. The one who's in charge of Northern Mexico, uh, and it's not as though, I, I, and I don't want to be mistaken here, it's not as though these cartels are sort of standing up a parallel government, and they, you know, and they're like, you know, revolutionaries or something. Uh, they, they, are, they are corporations. Uh, what we're what we're seeing increasingly is the co opting of, of local and state governments by the cartels, and and this this has been true for as long as there's been cartels going back decades, um, but increasingly we see cartels paying off and, and, and co-opting uh, elements of government at every level, even, even going up to the national level and and the, the trial of, of El Chapo exposed some of that. And then the, the arrests that came after the arrest of Garcia Luna, who was the equivalent of like the, the FBI director in Mexico under uh, the president, under the Calderon presidency, who turns out was taking bribes the whole time from the Sinaloa cartel. Um, uh, so, that's the big shift, I think that we need to make. and um, and what that looks like in terms of of, of policy. Uh, I don't think that like Americans are quite ready for like to accept what that means. Uh, the Trump administration took a lot of flack uh, just for leaning on uh, on President um, Lopez Obrador uh, to control, you know, to do something about illegal immigration. he, you know, he threatened a five percent tariff on on Mexican imports, which is basically threatening to uh, cripple the Mexican economy unless he sort of did what Trump wanted and, and put some controls at the border with Gu- the Southern border with Guatemala and interdict some of these caravans. And it worked uh, you know, uh, for a while, but, but, but I should say outsourcing immigra- U.S. immigration policy to the Mexican federal government is a short-term solution. Um, there was a time in, uh, in U.S. history not that long ago about a hundred years ago, where uh, U.S. policy toward Mexico was that we would not tolerate a state of lawlessness uh, on, on the U.S.-Mexico border, and if there and if the Mexican state was not able to control uh, the situation south of the Rio Grande, then we would uh, out of out of a uh, in pursuit of national our own national interests, not in pursuit of you know. Uh, imposing some kind of uh, rule or, or conquest of Mexico, but in in the interest of securing our communities and our rule of law and, 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 uh, and keeping our people safe. Uh, and, it, you know and, I, and I'm thinking of this because uh, the other day on Twitter, somebody posted a video in Laredo, Texas. They were taking a video of the port of entry standing in the US, looking toward the uh, the turnstiles and, and, and the, the the port in Mexico. Uh, and you could just hear, if you turn the audio on, just a, a gun battle raging just on the other side of the port of entry. Automatic machine gun fire, explosions. There, there, there was a, a, a running street battle happening in Nuevo Laredo, just across the border. That is precisely the situation uh, in 1918 uh, that happened in El Paso. And the U.S. Army barracks there immediately deployed into Juarez. Uh, to secure the city because, because stray bullets were coming across the border into El Paso. Um, It was an immediate reaction by the U S army that this situation was intolerable. The, the Mexican uh, federal forces were fighting the, the revolutionaries and the battle was starting to spill over into the United States. So um, there's very similar things happening in Mexico now on the border. Um, It's not in the context of a of a, of a, of a revolution. Uh, but it is in the context of of um, cartels and government forces or cartels versus cartels uh, and, and the effects on us communities are very similar. And, and, and in an, in an, in an earlier time, not that long ago would have, would have seemed and been intolerable to uh, to us authorities. And so I think we need to uh, think again and maybe revisit what it is that we you know, what is the threshold for chaos in northern Mexico right on our border that we're willing to tolerate?
0: Um, why Why do you think, I mean, you're referencing the last time this happened being 100 years ago, and, and I, I can't really think of a time in the intervening 100 years where, I mean, there's definitely been better times and worse times between uh, Mexico and the United States, but I can't really think of a time when Mexico was, was sort of completely stable. Um, why is it that mexico hasn't been able to achieve that kind of stability i mean um if if we listen to the sort of the chomskyite left right they would say
1: uh all our fault right
0: it's it's all our fault it's american imperialism you know poor mexico so far from god so close to the united states right um what what's is there any truth to that perspective that mexico um mexico's destability is in some way connected to being so close to the united states um, or is, is there something else uh, going on there? Like, why is it that Mexico seemingly cannot have, let's say, five consecutive decades of, of relative stability?
1: Well, Canada's close to the United States, too. <laughs> I, I don't like these arguments because I think that uh, I think they're condescending, for one thing, to to uh, the people of Mexico um, because it takes their agency away and, and it supposes that, that all the agency lies with, uh, with the United States and with Americans and that we, we are the only actors who matter and our decisions are the only decisions that have consequences. And, and I don't think that that's right. Um, uh, and I don't think it's accurate uh, at all. I think um, depending on how far sort of back we want to go, uh, that a lot of the problems in Mexico really stem from from the founding of Mexico um, you know Mexico couldn't have have had a more different experience than North America in terms of its emergence into the modern world uh, Mexico uh, was conquered by Spain, which was a uh, a very different power than than England and had a very different culture and the cultural uh, sort of uh, inheritance that Mexico got uh, did not set them up for success with with uh, democratic institutions and 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 uh, and a, a rep- republican form of government um, they they had a very they inherited from Mexico very hierarchical social institutions that took the form in 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 the emergence of a of a modern Mexico of, a, a patronage system where you had a, uh, you know, a, a powerful, uh, a powerful patron or boss who who, who ran an, an area or a geographic region, uh, or, or a massive, you know, uh, uh, vias and presidios and, and ranches. Uh, and, and that's where power was located. And power was, uh, was hierarchical. It was vertically integrated. It was not diffuse and it and and society was very stratified uh, and it was and, and in some some cases stratified racially between you know uh, Mexicans of Spanish descent uh, versus Mexicans of indigenous descent um, and all of that couldn't be more different than than the experience of uh, of the the British colonists who settled America and and who forged our institutions, which were very. Uh, you know horizontally integrated where where yeah, equality and diffuseness of of power was uh, was the norm and and so I think that mexico had a a difficult time from the outset because uh because what emerged from from the spanish colonies was a very different kind of society that was that was not well suited to uh democracy or republican forms of government compared to the United states. And I think that that is that is that's probably the you know, it's a difficult issue to get into in depth, you know, in a conversation like this. But I think that that more than anything explains the difficulties that Mexico has had from historical perspective, from a more recent uh, perspective, uh, you know, just looking at the last, you know, 40 years or so, uh, you know, you had the PRI in in Mexico, uh, this political party that that a single political party ruled Mexico from 1929 to 2000, you know, for 70 years, you had one party rule in Mexico and the whole country was a patronage system for the PRI. Um, that, that, just let me interject sorry, yeah, here. Um,
0: no, 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 no. I, 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 want you to finish up this answer. But I've, I used to laugh at the the name PRI. I'm like, what does that mean? Party of Institutionalized Revolution. And now, when I look at the wokes here in the United States, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Now I understand. It's Institutionalized Revolution. Yeah. So Sorry. Go on.
1: Yeah, and it's and, and of course it becomes a it becomes a parody of itself after after seventy years. You know, because like the revolution is just these entrenched, corrupt uh, self-dealing, uh, you know, uh, elites and, and, and the, uh, you know, the patronage system that they built up to maintain power, um, that, that, that is not a situation in which, uh, you know, and, 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 along with this comes a lot of sort of leftist politics and, and, and socialist policies and, you know, uh, uh the, the nationalized, uh, uh, industries like the oil industry for, for many years, um. And so it's been difficult to break, you know, after 70, you know, 70 years of that makes it difficult to break out of that and to, you know, forge a, a real market based economy, um, pr- private industry and investment, uh, and the development of, of major, you know, uh, industry sectors like oil and gas. Um, so it's... Uh, I don't think that the problems the problems that Mexico have are Mexican problems that 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 come primarily from uh, Mexico's own history, from their the development of their own political institutions. Uh, ha, ha, you know, has the U.S. played a role? Uh, you know, certainly in 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 the drug war, yes. Uh, uh, but but I, I I don't think that we can lay the blame for this for the uh, state. Of Mexico, which, as you say, is is better thought of as a as a failing state or or a an emerging narco state. I don't think that we can lay the blame for that solely at the at the feet of the United States, or even primarily at the feet of the United States. I think that these are very old problems that have very deep roots uh, and and that don't have easy solutions.
0: Um, I do want to get to the the drug war piece of this conversation in a moment, but um, first I want to ask you because you just went through. Um, in in you know short version of the history of mexico um and it seems like domestically we talk about um issues at the border and the, d- the differences between the united states side of the border and the mexican side of the border in terms of sort of domestic racial terms um and could you maybe explain why that particularly doesn't make sense for anybody who spends a lot of yeah. time on the border
1: oh yeah uh, it's it's very frustrating and really um just stupid way to think about about the border that there you know um in in texas you know they used to talk about tejanos and anglos right um the the anglos being the newcomers to 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 texas uh and especially in south texas there are there are um you know, I guess you would say Hispanic families, but but traditionally Tejano families that go back centuries, right? Um, that that were part of you know initial Spanish crown land grants, and um, and the the these communities have um, uh, you know ha, you know variously have seen themselves as as Texan or Tejano for 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 a long time, and when we kind of try to overlay our our modern racial categories and, and and certainly kind of our our woke nonsense onto a place like northern Mexico or southern Texas it just doesn't fit at all and you know I'll give you I'll give you an example you know the the um, uh, the, the corporate press will a lot of times talk about uh, you know racial attitudes or or uh, disparities. Um, and and focus in on black Americans and Hispanic Americans. Uh, And and the the problem that a lot of journalists get into, uh, especially in Texas, is that um, after a few generations of being in the United States, the vast majority of Hispanics begin to identify as white. That that doesn't mean that they lose their Hispanic culture or, or even their language, although often they do. Uh, But they but they stop seeing themselves in terms of this category of Hispanic, uh, largely because the category of Hispanic was sort of invented in the middle of the 20th century by the left. Um, And it and it is it is not a racial category, as as you well know, but a a linguistic category. Uh, But in places like Texas, it doesn't it doesn't make much sense simply, as I said, because after a few generations, even uh, families that arrive in the in the United States from Mexico, after two or three generations, their children just identify as white, uh, which is one of the reasons actually that the Hispanic population of Texas is not growing as fast as as many people said it would, um, uh, because of this. You just have um,
0: people marking different categories on the the census form.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I it, and the other aspect to this, circling back to the border, is that some of the. Um, Some of the people in in South Texas who are most against illegal immigration from Mexico and certainly from Central America uh, are uh, Hispanic people who have an established presence, who have been in Texas for uh, a a number of generations. Um, They are very much uh, anti uh, illegal immigration. Many of them, as we saw in the in in the 2020 election, um, voted for Trump. Uh, many of them are moving out of the Democratic Party, where they've just culturally been Democrats, like a lot of parts of the country for for decades and decades, moving into the Republican uh, Party because of, of border issues and because of immigration issues. And it's it's an undercovered story, and again, undercovered because it's it's uh, counter narrative.
0: Yeah, and, and um, another thing I think doesn't get it doesn't get reported oftentimes when you're talking, for example, about interactions between Border Patrol and migrants. On- Everybody involved is of Hispanic or even Mexican descent. Sometimes, <laughs> I, so it- I,
1: almost every Border Patrol agent I've I've met, I can only think of one uh, one Border Patrol agent uh, who was a press liaison guy um, who, who was white. But <laughs> other than that, every almost every Border Patrol agent I've ever done a ride along with, talked to in an interview, talked to on the phone. Uh, are all Hispanic. and most of them are from uh, central Texas. like they're they're actually from the the communities where they work. Uh, so the the um, the kind of the racial overlay that I think a lot of the the um, corporate media wants to put on specifically on the illegal immigration issue at the border doesn't work. Uh, you know, if you want to talk in 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 terms of like groups, all these people are Hispanic. They all are Spanish speaking. Um, and, and they, and, and there's, there's, there's not a really easy racial difference that you can tease out here.
0: Yeah. Um, let's return to the, the drug question, obviously, um, even though the cartels are moving into human trafficking as a major moneymaker, I guess one I'd want to ask you, is that connected to the legalization of marijuana increasingly in, in the United States? And the second thing is, um, you know, what drugs are they moving into the United States? How are they doing that? What are the impacts in the United States from the drugs that are coming through the southern border?
1: The, they, um, the legalization of marijuana has had a big effect on the drug trafficking at the border, and one of the things it's it's one of the effects has been that the cartels have diversified their sources of income, um, and this is this isn't new. They they. Uh, the cartels have always kind of looked for uh, ways of making money more efficiently. Um, And, you know, people who have watched Netflix's Narcos uh, series know that uh, the, the, you know, getting into trafficking cocaine from, from South America. Uh, But the legalization of marijuana has certainly reduced the amount of marijuana coming across the border and has increased uh, the amount of fentanyl meth and opioids uh, and, and heroin, um, uh, you know, pretty, pretty markedly. So we have record numbers of fentanyl, record amounts of fentanyl seizures and meth and heroin seizures at the border right now. Um, and, and that is, that is a result of the cartels figuring out that they, that it's much easier to move these drugs it's, uh, they can manufacture these drugs themselves they import the precursor chemicals from china they they make uh you know the, the fentanyl or the opioids in labs in mexico and um and they're e- they're easier to transport and most of the most of them go through the ports of entry hidden in commercial vehicles and I, a few years ago i visited uh the port of entry at laredo a lot of people don't realize this, but Laredo is the largest port of entry by volume, or it's the it's the largest land port of entry by by volume. It's the second largest port of entry. Period after the port of Los Angeles, hundreds of billions of dollars of goods go through Laredo from uh, to and from uh, Mexico and the United States every year. And when you stand on the catwalk at the port of entry on the commercial side in Laredo, there's a there's like a little footbridge over these these like this like eight lane pathway that's just commercial vehicles that have been cleared for uh, as part of the FAST program. And so they're just they're just it's an unbroken stream of commercial vehicles, hundreds of them continually in an unbroken stretching back for like five miles into Mexico that are just constantly flowing into the United States. So the cartels use that stream of commercial traffic uh, to to bring these drugs in. They have unbelievably ingenious ways of hiding drugs, they they will dissolve drugs in gasoline in the gas tanks, they they will they will hide them in compartments in the engine attached to the engine as other components. Um, They'll hide them as cargo in various ways. And, and they know that US Customs and Border Protection will only catch a certain percentage and they they bake that in to their business model, they know certain percentage is going to get caught. Uh, but the vast majority will get through, sh- simply because of of the volume of traffic. It, it it it's you have to kind of go there and see it. It's mind boggling, the the and and that, and that's you know, we have Herculean efforts on the U.S. side to try to detect this this stuff. Uh, you know, X-ray machines like warehouse size X-ray machines that X-ray eighteen wheelers to try to find contraband. um, and, and they do, but, but it's only a drop in the bucket. And so uh, record amounts of fentanyl uh, and meth uh, are being seized at the border, which means record amounts are getting in. Uh, and, and I think we see that reflected in, in heroin and opioid overdose deaths, which you know, are, are continue to climb and reach record levels in the United States.
0: Let's, let's um, wrap up by talking about moral responsibility here because there's so much human suffering going on in this entire kind of chain of processes, right? Whether it's, it's from uh, the journeys that migrants are taking uh, sometimes from halfway around the globe and then through extremely rough terrain, um, you know, essentially working with these vicious cartels um, to, to have themselves smuggled over the border um, whether it's the cenital the and opioid overdose deaths that you just referred to. I mean, um, whether it's just people dying in the desert, um, attempting right. to cross or drowning um, in the Rio Grande, you know, wh- how do we think about, because I guess what I'm trying to formulate here is it seems like our um, sympathy and our um, natural Instinct to to want to minimize this kind of human suffering is always deployed as a cudgel in one direction, right? It's if if you feel any sympathy at all for somebody who might want to escape Honduras and build a better life for their families um, in the United States then the only way forward is essentially open border policy, right? We have to take all these folks in um, into the United States and and um, let them make their homes here. And that is the compassionate thing to do. Um, how would you sort of assess the the morality of both our policies and the way we think about our own southern border in context of all of this? I mean, frankly, human suffering that's happening every day on our border. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. It's a hard subject. Um I think that that in terms of uh US policy, uh US immigration and border policy needs to be for Americans. Uh it needs to be in, in the interest, the best interest of Americans. That that is um uh that is I think fundamental to uh not just policy on the border, but 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 all uh all U.S. policy needs to have the, the best interests of the people who constitute the nation first. Um, but what we have is a policy that that um, that creates suffering. Doesn't matter which administration is is is, is in power or uh, which party is in, in power, uh, and doesn't serve the interests of the American people. Uh, so it's sort of a, the worst combination possible. I think that uh we do need to have uh, borders you can't have a country without borders uh and i think that we need to be very clear uh in how we enforce uh and control those borders so that we have an orderly way and a regular way for people to come into the country uh, and not this ad hoc impromptu completely irregular uh, and and in some ways uh bureaucratically capricious system uh in in which uh we have all these different categories of people uh who who are on all these different tracks um you know we have we have programs like you know temporary protected status right uh for 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 refugees it's not temporary this dates back from the 1990s so we have these kafka-esque euphemisms in our law of temporary programs that were meant to be you know to provide temporary relief for victims of a hurricane which have been going on now for 30 years Um, so, uh, we need to clear our minds of can't and see things for, see reality as it is and understand that much of the world, um, is poor and, and many people in the world, many more than we could ever, uh, receive in an orderly way would like to come here. Now, given that, um, I think that we need to also, recognize that we have maintained for many decades, a policy that you could call a policy of benign neglect for our Southern neighbors. It is not acceptable in my view and not sustainable that we would have a 2000 mile land border with a collapsing state. Um, That is not a tenable situation. It is in our national interest to ensure and to take steps to make sure that Mexico is a stable country that we can work with. And we have not done that. We also have an interest uh, in making sure that the countries of Central America, South of Mexico are stable and and relatively prosperous and that they are not in a state of collapse as they are now. Uh, It it blows my mind that we would spend 20 years and untold blood and treasure in places like iraq and afghanistan uh but allow our southern neighbors to cult to descend essentially into chaos um that that is uh we have a moral responsibility to the people of this country to make sure that that doesn't happen and that we don't have a rolling humanitarian crisis on the border that waxes and wanes with different administrations but that is always simmering there waiting to explode that That is unacceptable. And I think the American people, to the extent that they understand what's going on, know that it's unacceptable, which is why a clear majority of people are dissatisfied with the Biden administration's handling of this crisis. Um, But but, but these are questions that we need to ask ourselves and we need to grapple with questions like, what is our immigration policy? Who, Who is it for, you know, and why? What is our border for? And, and who should it serve? Uh, and, and until we as a country can kind of really have an honest conversation about that, we are going to just continue with these rolling crises at the border uh, that are completely unfair to the people who are crossing the border and completely unfair to the American people as well.
0: John, um, I could talk to you about this for another hour. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. We didn't even get to COVID, we didn't get to um, all kinds of things that are in the news, but um, hopefully this conversation gives people a little more background about the history between the United States and Mexico and and sort of a framing in which to consider all the various Mm -hmm. crises that, as you say, will continue to bubble up. So thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.